Today's podcast is brought to you by LootCrate.com. Save 10% on any new subscription at trylootcrate.com slash picture lock. Enter promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Welcome to another unlocked episode of the world famous award winning Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson. Filmmaker, film festival director, film critic, and lover of film and TV. You can find all the back episodes and so much more at PictureLockShow.com. This unlocked episode features my full conversation with Eric Christopher Myers. Eric, in my opinion, is changing the game in the found footage horror genre with his new film, Butterfly Kisses. It's currently on the film festival circuit and has been doing extremely well with audiences. I honestly feel like if you haven't seen the film, you might want to hold off on this episode until you have, because we do discuss spoilers after the first portion that aired for radio. I only say this because it's best to see the film with fresh eyes, so I'm giving you fair warning. However, for those of us who have seen it, this interview will be a real treat as you get to hear from the man himself about the things that went into creating this film. And uh, since, you know, this is an unlocked episode, I'm going to get my usual end spill out of the way and let you know that you can find Picture Lock on social media. All of it is at Picture Lock Show. You can download the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio and other places podcasts are downloaded. In fact, one of my favorite things to do these days is talk to Amazon, my Amazon device. It's an Echo Dot. I just say, Alexa, play Picture Lock and tune in and boom, it pops up. Feel free to give the show a hearty review. I definitely appreciate those five stars. Don't forget to check out the website, picturelockshow.com, for movie reviews, news, and to subscribe to our newsletter to get a chance to win tickets for movie screenings in the DMV. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, you can fill out the form on the website. Send me an email. Let me know what you think of this show, picturelockshow at gmail.com. Our music is done by Mike S. of Prophet 13. Thanks, bro. Don't forget to check out Picture Lock PR for all your film publicity needs. Submit to the 2018 DC Black Film Festival as call for entries are now open. And with that, let's hear the unlocked version of my conversation with Eric Christopher Myers, director of Butterfly Kisses. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, and in Butterfly Kisses, a videographer sorting through used tapes uncovers hours of footage of a young woman obsessed with an apocryphal figure known as Peeping Tom. Determined to uncover the mystery behind her fascination, he in turn loses himself in the vanished woman's tale. I have the director of this film on the line with me, Eric Christopher Myers. Eric, welcome to Picture Lock. Good morning, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Oh, man, I am so excited. Eric, I haven't been this excited about an indie film in quite some time, if, if ever. Like, this, I, I'm so excited to talk about this. Uh, but uh, the, you, tell, you tell all the filmmakers that, <laughs> don't you? You old schmoozy. I don't think I tell them like, like this. You can, you can check the tapes. Uh, <laughs> you might go you into know, your... Actually, it's really cool talking to you about this because the last time you and I were face-to-face was at the 2014 Indie Capital Awards. And I was there for my film Roulette, and it won some awards. And so you interviewed me on the red carpet, and you asked me what I had coming up next. And it was the very first time that I ever 
ever referenced this film to anyone anywhere outside of the people that were working on it with me in pre-production at the time. And I, you know, sort of dropped a cryptic little clue and just said I was going to be doing something really under the radar. And it was so under the radar that it's only just now that we are announcing festivals and sort of coming out with this film. A lot of people are looking at me and saying, you made another movie? I had no idea you made another movie. <laughs> right. It, it was that secretive. So it's just cool to be talking to you of all people, not only for your enthusiasm for the film, but just that, you know, we, we had that we had that little shared moment there. You know, and, and you're absolutely correct. Um, you know, so we did talk about this a little bit on Facebook and when I went back and I checked the tape, I was like, Wow, how crazy would that have been if blank? But we're gonna save that for the podcast version when we get into spoiler territory. But for right now, Eric, first question I'll always start out with is, when did you first fall in love with film? Uh, it was an immediate thing. It was at a very young age. Um, I just began watching movies, particularly uh, movies that scared the hell out of me. Um, An American Werewolf in London, movies like that that I saw at a really young age. And the, uh, the fact that they scared me as much as they did um, had a power. Uh, it, there was a power that drew me back repeatedly. Horror isn't the only genre that I love or that I make, but there was something about that genre and its ability to affect me on such a primal level that I wanted to understand the power it had over me, and then I wanted to try in turn to do that to other people. It was a, it was a very it was a very immediate thing. It was it, storytelling in general, whether film or on the written page, was something that that became an obsession of mine from the time I was old enough to understand what stories were. Now, to follow up on that, because I, I think this is, that's a great point that you have. Um, a lot of times, I do in in turn get fascinated by the fact that we can watch a film and it can totally shift our emotions and our mood and put us into certain places. So kind of following up on what you just said, do you feel as though you've been able to uh, master or at least uh, get down the techniques to draw out that fear in people? Um. Anyone says that they've ever mastered anything, particularly in regards to art, uh, doesn't know their ass from a hole in the ground. But um, I'd like to I'd like to think that um, I'm continuously developing my toolkit. Um, I'd like to say that I'm able to tell compelling stories uh, with subject matter that can be either troubling or uh, can provoke conversation and thought. Uh, the, the last film that I did, which was actually my first feature, um, it was called Roulette, and it got me into a lot of trouble in some circles uh, because the ending uh, was very grisly, and it had, a, it had a plot point that bothered a lot of people, and there were a number of festivals that, um, or, or in fact, uh, local venues that wouldn't show the film because the ending was so intense and the great irony was that i went back to, to hitchcock i went i went to the shower scene in psycho and um the editing techniques of uh you know putting together disparate ideas uh to create a new idea you know you see see norman bates swinging a knife you see janet lee screaming and then you see blood going down the drain and you think you're seeing a woman being stabbed to death in a shower but you're not actually seeing anything 
Um, I, I utilized that approach uh, with the ending of roulette, and a lot of people thought they saw more than they did, mm. uh, or else just the the content or the subject matter of the content was considered to be um, too edgy. But at any rate, uh, you know that was the best and worst thing that ever happened to me, uh, in the sense that. You know, yes, it did bother a number of people, but it also showed me the power um, that I could wield or anybody could wield uh, when telling a story. And it got me a lot of notice. It got me a lot of attention. Um, I don't employ quite the same tricks in Butterfly Kisses, but um, I tried some new things and they seem to be working in front of festival audiences. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, and I'm talking to the writer-director of Butterfly Kisses, Eric Christopher Myers. Um, Eric, I really uh, love the fact that I am talking to a cinematic scholar. You understand that A plus B equals C, uh, as we just talked about with uh, Hitchcock, um, and I, I definitely think that that shines through um, in Butterfly Kisses. One last question before we get to that. Um, could you just give us like your background story? Like, how did you get into the industry? So you're that kid that loved, you know, um, the horror films. And then from there, did you go to school or, you know, did you just start making films? Um, I was writing stories and screenplays from the time I was very young. Um, I was involved with theater all throughout uh, high school and, uh, never with an intent to act, but rather an understanding of um, the performing arts and um, specifically how an actor finds uh, their technique uh, to disappear into a role. I really wanted to understand that because I knew that I wanted to direct at some point. Um, I made a number of uh, bad films in high school with friends, uh, bad in the best possible way. Uh, I still <laughs> love them very much. Nice. Uh, but you're still cringy when you watch them. Um, but regardless, after high school, I took a few years off before I went to college. And instead, I was working on local plays and other productions, uh, whether that was running the lights or, or painting sets or whatever I could do to sort of um, wedge my way in the door and meet people. All the while, I was continuing my own self-education with, uh, with film, specifically with screenwriting, um, studying uh, published uh, screenplays and the works of various uh, film critics. And uh, then when I went back to school, the intent was to be an English teacher and to hopefully sell a script or do some, uh, some film work on the side. And... I realized I wasn't happy and that I needed to take the jump, and so I did. I went to Towson University. I was an electronic media and film major. And um, after college, I got a number of recent grads together and said, let's pool our resources, let's make an independent film, let's let people know we're here. And so we made Roulette, and it was regionally successful enough that it um, it got a fair amount of press, it played a few small festivals, won some awards, and it got me some meetings, and that led to Butterfly Kisses and where I am today. Awesome. So let's, finally, we're here, let's get into it. Butterfly Kisses, uh, if you could, just in your own words, because I feel like, personally, when I saw this, I went into it, because you've done such a great job of uh, keeping it a secret, 
um, I went into it with fresh eyes and uh, I was absolutely floored. But I wanted you to put it in your own words what the film is about as not to, you know, mess it up because uh, I could try to describe this thing and I might mess things up. But I want the audience to be able to see it with fresh eyes. It's going to be playing at the Annapolis Film Festival um, and other places. But I think that's going to be the, the place, folks, that you can see it um, real soon here. Kevin, you're, you're experiencing the same problem I have, which is this is a very... Uh, I, I don't want to say difficult movie to describe, but rather you could come at it from probably about four or five different angles and uh, pitch it in different ways, depending on what you consider to be the, uh, the, the, the most salient part of the, the film. Um, Butterfly Kisses is a documentary about a documentary about a documentary. Um, it is a film within a film within a film. It is the story of a Baltimore-based videographer named Gavin York who discovers in the basement of his mother-in-law's new home a shoebox, um, a 10-year-old shoebox filled with mini DV tapes dating back to 2004. And he goes through this footage, and what he sees is, in his mind, a real-life, Blair Witch Project, a real-life paranormal activity. Um, it's found footage in the truest sense of the word in that he actually finds this, and it tells the story of student filmmakers who go to make a documentary about a local urban legend, an apparition known as Peeping Tom, and uh, their supernatural um, experiences uh, subsequent to filming him and their ultimate disappearance or, or demise. And this videographer in 2015 who's found this box of tapes believes that, uh, you know, he's, he's struck gold. This is the real thing. This isn't manufactured by studios. This is real-life found footage. And being a somewhat failed filmmaker as he is, he's viewing this as his last opportunity to make his mark in the world. So he's trying to go forth with this box of tapes and prove to the world uh, that it is real and cash in on it. And along the way, he is met with nothing but skepticism and obstacles and um, accusations of, of fraud, more or less. And as he is going through this experience of trying to get the, the footage out there and seen by the world, he too ends up going down a very, very dark road as he becomes more and more obsessed with the footage. So uh, I guess the next question would be, like, what inspired you uh, to create this? Because, uh, again, folks, I think this is just such a fresh, uh, original take on the genre that I, when I saw it, I was like, what? what? Like, how many years? Obviously, we, we're talking about when you mentioned it, I think that was 2014 when we spoke on the red carpet. It's been, it had to have been, you know, just festering in your mind for quite some time. What inspired uh, this film? It was, it was really, to be honest with you, it, it wasn't in my mind for that long. It, it kind of came to me like lightning out of a clear blue sky one day when I was out for a walk, as most ideas do. Um, the, the interest uh, in cryptozoology and urban legends and folklore uh, exists with me going back to the time that I was very young. It was part of my 
you know, loving to be scared. And so I wanted to read about, you know, finger quotes, real life ghosts and, and the Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot and these things. And uh, as I grew older um, and began approaching these things from a skeptical perspective, my interest only deepened. Um, and so I'm involved with a number of, of groups and Facebook forums and whatnot um, on the topic of these sort of fringe belief systems. I knew I wanted to make a movie about something like that, and I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to tell. And I saw shortly after Roulette was released, and I was just trying to think about what I wanted to make next, uh, I saw a commercial or trailer for a found footage film that was due to be released. And immediately my wheels start turning as they typically do, both as a skeptic and also as a storyteller. And I began saying to myself, well, there was that window when the Blair Witch Project came out and everybody thought it was real for about five minutes. These found footage movies that are asking you to suspend disbelief and to uh, accept the premise that you are watching something that is real. If someone did find lost footage, um, what would be the journey uh, that it would take from being uncovered to ending up playing in a movie theater? Um, you know, who would find that footage? How did they find that footage? Once they found it, did they look at it right away? Did they give it to someone else? Did someone else find it? And, and upon viewing this, what would convince a person? What inherent clues or, or proofs within the context of the footage itself would convince a person that what they were looking at wasn't an unfinished horror movie or, or something that had been abandoned, uh, that it was real. And if they believed it, what then would they do to verify or authenticate it? They would clearly have to take this to the authorities next. Um, would this be something that uh, would be rejected outright by authorities? Would it be something that then would be uh, assimilated into a cold case file uh, as, as evidence of, of, you know, an unexplained death and the clues within that? You know, what, what sort of legal uh, loopholes would families sign off on releases to allow this stuff to be seen? And, you know, to me, that became a thousand times more interesting than um, the content that anyone could find on these tapes. And the idea that somebody would believe that they had it and it was genuine, um, if they were trying to bring it forward, no one would believe it. No one would. No one would take it seriously, and so that that was the story that I wanted to tell. And once that sort of clicked in my brain, um, I wrote the script in I want to say eight days. Came out very quickly. Wow. Clearly, folks, he has definitely thought this bad boy through. It's Picture Lock. I'm Kevin Sampson. I'm talking with the writer director of Butterfly Kisses, Eric Christopher Myers. Eric, unfortunately, we're gonna have to bring this. Uh, part of the interview to a close. Uh, but folks, if you are subscribed to the Picture Lock podcast, I want you to check out the Picture Lock Unlocked episode where Eric and I are going to go deeper into butterfly kisses. Now, in part, I would say that you probably want to go ahead and see the film first because we're going to get into spoiler territory and you're going to really appreciate the conversation that we're going to have. So again, you know you guys can subscribe to Picture Lock and iTunes, tune in, all that good stuff. But Eric... If you could, 
let people know how they can follow the film, social media, and uh, upcoming film festivals. Um, check it out, uh, Butterfly Kisses Movie on Facebook. Uh, you can look me up, Eric Christopher Myers. Um, meanwhile, the film is going to be playing this Friday, March 23rd, at the Annapolis Film Festival. Uh, it will be playing the next day, for those of you on the West Coast, March 24th, at the Unnamed Footage Festival in San Francisco. And then on April 27th, we are opening the Maryland International Film Festival. We're, we're going to be the first film that's played. It's a huge honor. I'm very excited. I, guys, I can't I can't speak enough about this film. You definitely want to check it out if you live in those areas. Eric Christopher Myers, director of Butterfly Kisses, thanks for coming on Picture Lock. The pleasure is mine. Thank you, Kevin. All right, man. So now uh, that was for the radio. This part is Picture Lock Unlocked. So uh, if we can, can we get into spoiler territory here? Let's get into spoiler territory. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, so when, when I when I watch this, um, and this is an unlocked episode, so it's not really like I got to be as formal. Man, dude, well, I there are so many films that come across my desk, and rarely do films like just make me stop, you know, playing on my cell phone or sending out an email while I'm watching on an, another screen. This film did that for me. Um, I automatically like once I started to see something was really clearly developing. I put everything down to the side and I was locked in. <laughs> so first off, I just got to say, like, I, I definitely, um, I, I love the film. I can't stop talking about it. You know that. Um, but yeah, I was like, man, how, what, how did this guy think of this? So to me, like, you, and, and you described it as a film within a film within a film. And, and that's how I would describe it. I feel like cinematically, it's the dream within a dream uh, and inception. Right. And you have these little kicks that, you know, allow us as you know, we're, we're moving from one layer to another. But like by the time that you're like kind of in that the world of butterfly kisses, like you're just to me, it's kind of like you're just along for the ride because you're questioning everything. So I guess one of the first questions is kind of like, um, did you did you intentionally design it where? As the audience members, we start to question everything to a point where we just don't know the answer. So we just have to go on uh, along uh, for the ride with you. It, first off, it's really funny that you mentioned Inception simply because when I first uh, when I first pitched this to the producers, um, two of them, Corey Okuchi and Carl Glorioso, I, I, I think uh, one of them locked on immediately and said, this is, this is the inception of found footage. That, that's what this movie is. And I was like, uh, okay, yeah, I guess. <laughs> and that was, that was how they continued to pitch it to everyone. Um, so it's funny that you, you, you locked onto that. Um, if you're talking about the whole idea of the sort of questionable reality of the film, um, that, that to me was probably the most important aspect of all of this. If I was going to simply make a found footage film, as they are typically made, um, you know, you just you, you, you get your cast, you get your crew, and you go out and you tell a scary story, and there's nothing wrong with that. that that's, that's all well and good. I wanted to comment more upon the genre 
And in doing so, I also wanted to, you know, kind of take the genre back a little bit to what Ed Sanchez did with the Blair Witch Project in that he made this film that people were, you know, legitimately wondering uh, whether it was real or not. And, you know, that, that's, that's lightning striking, you know, twice. It doesn't happen. But no one, no other filmmakers have really tried to latch on to that idea in follow-ups. It's just sort of been the next film like The Blair Witch Project and the next film and the next film. I wondered if there was any, um, if there were any seeds left in that original garden that, that I could tend. And I thought it would be very, very cool um, to make found footage and um, rather than trying to trick people, rather than telling them that, yeah, this, this, this found footage is real, it's like the Blair Witch Project, people are just going to roll their eyes, which is the premise of the film. No one would take this seriously. So what my ultimate goal was, was, okay, you make that found footage movie, but you wrap a documentary around it. And the documentary has to be completely believable for as much of it as you can, uh, you know, create that verisimilitude and sustain it. So that meant um, there couldn't be um, a lot of, you know, ghosts jumping out and stuff like that within the documentary. It had to play it straight, put all the sort of horror elements, the straight-faced horror elements into the found footage, and within the documentary tell a real story about real people and to fill that documentary with as many real people as humanly possible. People that if you're sitting there and you're wondering, is this an actor? You pull out your phone and you go on Google and you type in their name and you go, no, this is a real best-selling author. This is a real, uh, you know, published film historian. This is a real, uh, you know, Sundance award-winning director or, or psychologist or, you know, paranormal research group. You're able to check all those things out, including me. I'm in the film. My crew is in the film. Um, to break that wall down and have people wondering, well, how much of this is real? Is any of this real? And all the while, the documentary is saying, we're on your side, audience. We're not telling you this found footage is real. We're telling you it's probably not. It's probably all bogus. We're with you. See? Trust us. Trust, trust Butterfly Kisses, the documentary, while at the same time we're, we're having a gag. It's it's misdirection essentially. Yeah, you know, um, I, I definitely feel like. See, you put it you put it in an eloquent way. I think mine is just like, man, I just got so dizzy in all the questioning that I just was like, okay, let's see where this goes. Which uh, the way, like I said, the way that you put it together uh, is, sounds excellent. But for me personally, I just was at a point where I was like. Okay, um, there's a director behind this, and he knows what he's doing, and I'm going, I'm just going for the ride. Um, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about, as, as I was watching it, I was like, wow, I haven't felt like this about found footage since the Blair Witch Project, because, you know, it's been done so often, um, and it's still scary, you know, because you suspend your disbelief, and, you know, it's still scary, but I felt like this was something fresh and then when uh ed sanchez is actually in the film oh my goodness eric i was like wow 
Like not only not only am I thinking about Blair Witch, like the dude that directed it is in it, talking about it. I, I, like uh, that was obviously a part of the plan. Um, but did you feel kind of like I guess kind of what we were just talking about that he had to be in it to help um, the authenticity of it as well? No, actually, when I wrote the first script, um, he wasn't in it, and. Um, the reason for that was I knew Ed well enough to be able to say hello or to send an email. And uh, we'd, we'd done a panel at MICA together uh, as filmmakers discussing sound, um, sound design with uh, Studio Unknown hosting. And so I, I knew him well enough, but I, I didn't know how he would respond to me hitting him up and saying, you know, you've done so much since the Blair Witch Project. You've done Lovely Molly. You've done Exists. You're directing for TV now. You probably you, you probably don't want to keep talking about the Blair Witch Project. It's it's the first and last thing everyone asks you about. And so when I was pitching this film to um, producers uh, and and getting them to line up, one of the producers. Um, Corey Okuchi, and actually we were having this meeting at the guys from Studio Unknown, their office. Everyone kind of, you know, looked at me and said, have you, have you reached out to Ed? And I said, I said, no, I haven't, and for the reasons I, I stated previously. And everyone was just like, the worst he's going to do is say no. This would be a fantastic idea if you could get him to, you know, play himself. You're asking everybody else, you're asking us to play ourselves, how awesome would it be if he was in there? And I was like, you know, I thought about it, but you know, okay, you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll reach out to him. I'm pretty sure he'll say no, but I'll reach out to him. And, um, one of us contacted him and the next thing you knew, we had a, a meeting with him and with Carl Glorioso at the Frederick film office the next week. And I sat down and I pitched it for about two hours and Carl ended up coming on board the film as a producer and Ed graciously agreed to, you know, sort of satirize the, the genre, the subgenre that he created, and also was very gracious along the way to watch various cuts of the film and to give notes. And um, it, was, it was really very cool to have him in that film. And it always gets a really strong reaction in front of an audience when, when he shows up. Most definitely. Um, I thought... Uh, that part was awesome, and then when you actually show up in the film, that was when I was like genius. <laughs> um, uh, and again, that that so if we could talk a bit a minute for um just the wow the meta portion of this like I loved how you used aspect ratios um you know the type of like DV tapes that we would have been using in the early two thousands to actually make a film um and so. You know, the technique is there. We go from, and, and I think that's what helps, right? Because if it was all like, you know, 1080p the whole entire time, then it wouldn't be as realistic. But you actually have, you know, DV tapes, and then we go to, um, you know, the GoPros at one point. And, you know, it just, it's like that layer that within each uh, portion of the film that like really helps to uh, cement its authenticity. So could you talk a little bit about that blend that you have? Just, again, it's just like a super meta thing, like where it's, we're making a film about a film about a film. 
I knew that the film was going to need to be in high definition um, to ensure release. And so, of course, you know, the documentary wrapped around the found footage. It was a no-brainer that that was going to be shot uh, as such. The found footage was really exciting to me because, you know, I was making short films back in 2004, and I was using the technology um, of, that, of that moment in time and it, it being excited by it while also recognizing its limitations. Video really just looked like video. You couldn't make it look like um, film uh, believably for another few years. And uh, for me, it was, it was exciting to sort of be able to revisit that, that period of time um, and, and to try to use that sort of technology and create that look. And as you said, yes, there's, you know, too many DV cameras that constitute the found footage. And so you have changing aspect ratios and, um, you know, changing uh, footage quality and signal noise and all of that. Um, there was discussion for a while, uh, a lot of discussion between my cinematographer and co-editor, Kenny Johnson, and myself about what, uh, whether we were going to use this kind of camera or that kind of camera. The big conversation um, and debate we had was whether the found footage was going to be in color or in black and white. Uh, I felt very strongly that it should be in black and white, um, not only to create a very obvious uh, transition in the, the timeline as we're jumping back and forth, um, but also, I was a pretentious film student once, too. You know, we, we shot in black and white. We, we did things like that uh, to try to, you know, elevate the quality of what we were doing. And that it also just made the, the creepy stuff that happens creepier. Um, it was something we talked about a lot. But there was, I guess what I'm getting at is there was a lot of discussion all throughout the making of this film, uh, whether it was the technical aspect, like we're talking about now with the cameras, or the props, the set design, um, creating apartments for the characters using nothing but era-specific televisions and, and technology and, and, and things of that sort. There was a lot of thought that went into this all along the way, and it was so much fun to do you know, a not-too-distant period piece, but nonetheless a period piece. Yeah, you know, and I think that's what also kind of sells the film, because... I'm just looking at it. I'm like, man, how did he find all these DV tapes? How, and, uh, you know, so Sophia's uh, apartment, that, that room where, you know, it's uh, the peeping Tom is drawn on the wall. Like, uh, talk a little bit about that. Who 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 did that? That thing is beautiful, but in a scary type of way. We needed to create um, apartments, non-identifiable um apartments for the two leads in the found footage, the guy and the girl. Um, for Feldman's apartment, we, we dressed uh, an existing place. And for Sophia's apartment or, or dorm room, we never specify what it is, um, that was something that was literally created from scratch. It was the back room of a house and uh, you know, it, was, it was storing um, a motorcycle that was being repaired. I mean, you'd walk in there and you'd go, there's no way. But to their credit, the set designer, Laura Myers, and uh, producer and assistant director, Robin Nikolai, the two of them, you know, cleaned this place out. And they completely dressed it with furniture and with props and with photographs 
and with flower vases and, and, you know, all sorts of things of the era. And you'd, ne- you'd never believe it if you saw the room now. It, you, you wouldn't believe that that was actually the, the room that we shot in. Because as soon as you open the door to leave there, it was a completely different environment. Um, at the end of the film, as Sophia is starting to go a bit nuts based on um, this supernatural experience that she's having involving her camera and these tapes, um, we had the character essentially uh, depicted as having defaced the walls of her room in her mania. And so she's drawn all of these pictures of Peeping Tom. Um, She's drawn, uh, Peeping Tom being the the boogeyman of the film, she's drawn uh, a symbol that the film is constantly associating with the phenomenon. And she's just scrawled all of this stuff all over the walls like a mad person. And that was, again, fun, because we created this set, and then we destroyed it. Um, that was done, again, by Laura Myers, by Robin Nikolai, but also by the art director, Carl Porter, and uh, uh, Rachel Roth, who was an AD on the film, uh, Nick McMahon, who was uh, a conceptual designer. And they all just went in, and they went crazy in this room <laughs> with, with, with charcoal and chalk and, and, and paint and when I walked in and I saw it the first time, I, I might've said something that I probably can't say on the air right now, but I was amazed. It was incredible. It was incredible. Everybody put so much into this film. Yeah, man. And I think that, that, that really comes through. I feel like everybody came with their a game. Everybody. I I just have a feeling that like everybody, when they read the script, they got it and they were like, I got to be a part of this. Um, I think from uh, the Sophia Feldman character, to Gavin, like everyone um, brought this sense of, like for their character. So I like, I, I really enjoyed Sophia. I feel like as, you know, kind of this lead, like a female director that like is trying to make sure that Feldman gets under her lead, but at the same time, like she's trying to rein him in as she sees he's starting to get a little crazy, you know? Um, can you talk a little bit about your actors um, and uh, just what they brought to the film? For the sake of ensuring mystique, um, we aren't naming the actors yet. And uh, mostly because there are so many real people in the film that uh, it's been more fun to keep people guessing which people in this are real, which people aren't real. Um, so we're not naming the actors yet, and I know that they're all chomping at the bit to get their moment in, in, in the sun, and they will uh, when the film is released this fall. We're, we're negotiating distribution right now, and we're going to have some kind of a local premiere to tie into that and, you know, I'll unmask everybody publicly. But um, I can say this. The, the casting was it was, it was it was paramount to uh, creating this this believability within the context of the found footage, it could feel at times like, oh, this is a horror movie. These people are actors, whatever. And we didn't necessarily, you know, underline that. We wanted to make that as believable as possible as well. But it had a certain freedom um, to to feel like you were watching a, a Hollywood horror film. Within the context of the documentary wrapped around it, there was no such freedom. It had to feel real. And because I want to say 95 to 97% of the people that you see on camera during the documentary are all real people playing themselves, 
um, it meant that the you know the the actors we did slide in there to fill that five or three percent or whatever um, had to be completely uh, completely believable as being real and more importantly uh, when sharing time on camera with non actors who tend to maybe lock up uh, can't emote. Um, particularly if you're wanting them to become angry or you're wanting, you know, real emotions. Uh, I needed the actors that I, that I slotted in there to be able to provoke a response. And that was something that I felt was either going to work or not work. Either this was going to play as real or it was going to be an abysmal failure with a bunch of real people who are all very nice people but not actors standing there with their eyes open wide going, Yes, uh, I believe that this found footage is fake because of these reasons. You know, they're <laughs> gonna, and, and that's not what happened. Um, they rose to the occasion, and the actors worked with them and knew exactly how to push and how to pull, and they're great. They're great on camera. It's nuts. It's crazy. And and watching it now, I, I still have some, some difficulty believing that, um, you know, that, that we pulled this off and that it's as convincing as it is. But that, that was always the goal from the beginning. I had to find the right people, the right actors, um, who were able to perform and were able to follow my script, but at the same time gave me the freedom and opportunity to go off book, to uh, Im improv, and to uh, um, you know play within the false reality we were creating even on set to make it believable for us and to make it believable for them. Yeah, man, Eric, if you could, uh, I, I know we might be running short on time here, but um, I, I did want to get into some of the iconic images that you have within the film. Now, I think for every horror film and for every great horror film, like there are certain scenes or a certain images uh, that like just stick with us. So, for instance, like, you know, even the end of the Blair Witch Project, when you when you go into the room and like you see... Um, they're facing in the corner like that to me like I still can see that right now um, I think yes. th th I wanted to talk about like the concept of peeping Tom coming up from the tunnel I think that was one like thing that was like whoa like even even though like that's what the uh, you know Sophia and Feldman are doing like even as an audience like you're kind of like whoa um, but then also like there's these little these little moments and I think just how you have uh, people framed but for instance like when uh, Sophia is like trying to hold her eye open and you can you can just tell she's trying her best not to blink and she blinks and then she's like ah um and that intense moment like as the audience member you're just like oh my gosh she you know like and and it's funny kind of how we started off this whole conversation in terms of the building blocks that can help the audience believe what we're, we're, we're giving them or, you know, that can invoke fear. But the fact that, you know, as an audience member, you're just like, please don't blink. Like, step back for a second. Like, <laughs> blinking is something we all do, but you've made it to the point where, like, when she blinks, we're also like, oh, crap. Like, you know, uh, so if you could talk a little bit, I, I just love those those images. There's a, a few more in there. But um, but I think like that to me was just like 
that's kind of the movie in a nutshell, in a sense. Like Peeping Tom coming up, and and to me, like her, like trying not to blink. Well, I mean, that's sort of the essence of horror is um, trying to battle uh, something that you you can't ever um, you you can't ever beat. And in the case of this story, it's a biological function. We all need to blink. Um, you know, we all need to sleep. We all need to eat. We all need to use the bathroom. We all need to blink our eyes. And uh, you can perhaps um, delay that, but you're never going to be able to prevent it from happening. And when you attach a supernatural incident to that, um, you got a great story. And what, what, I, what I created for the film was the, um, the urban legend of Peeping Tom or the Blink Man or any number of names based on what era you supposedly heard the story on a playground. And it, it takes place at a train tunnel, a real train tunnel in old Ellicott City um, that spans the Patapsco River. And the legend within the film is that if you go to Ilchester Tunnel and if you stand at the far side of the trestle and from exactly midnight to 1 a.m., you're able to stare down the length without blinking your eyes once for this solid hour, which, of course, no one can do, um, that on the hour mark, Peeping Tom materializes at the end of the tunnel. Um, however, there's a catch, and the catch is that once you've seen him, uh, you cannot unsee him, and everywhere that you look, he will always be in the distance, but every time you blink your eyes, he gets one step closer and one step closer and one step closer until he's nose-to-nose -nose with you, and you're doing everything you can to prevent that last blink, holding your eyes open or whatever, and he has long eyelashes, and he reaches out with those to tickle your cheeks, to butterfly kiss you, which causes you to have that involuntary response where you blink your eyes, and then he pounces and quite literally scares you to death. Um, that, you know, that was the premise for the movie. That was the premise for the found footage, anyway. And I realized that I was going to need uh, a very iconic image that would appear in the found footage and that would be the inciting incident behind all of this. No matter what boogeyman stuff happens throughout the course of the found footage, the original image of Peeping Tom, the first time the filmmakers capture him on tape, needed to be the point that anyone who was actually looking at these tapes would go, that could be real, that could be real, and keep watching and taking it seriously and building their case for the authenticity of what transpires next all built upon this foundation. So for that initial image of Peeping Tom, as you were saying, materializing at the end of the tunnel, um, it needed to be simple. It needed to be elegant. It needed to look believable and yet at the same time raise doubts. Um, and there had to be data within the context of the footage that could be extrapolated, whether it was using computer software or doing mathematical analysis of distance and size or whatever, where you could either argue that it's real or argue that it's fake. And in doing so, I went back to one of the most famous disputed photographs of all time, the original of uh, the surgeon's photo of the Loch Ness Monster from 1934, the picture everybody has seen of the upraised head and neck in the water. And it's, you know, it's like, uh, it's, it's the symbol of that monster. It's like the golden arches for McDonald's or the, the Batman symbol, and everybody knows it. And it works, even though it's been discredited, 
it works because it is so simple. Uh, it is understated, and yet you can make arguments for the wave analysis to determine the size of the thing in the water. Is it really a monster or is it a toy? Um, I, I guess what I'm saying is I was trying to use that approach for Peeping Tom um, and to really make something that people would really argue about. And from there, you have fun. From there, you have those moments you're talking about that are just creepy or, or really primal or effective or what have you. But it all went back to that original image. But like you, I struggle when I watch this movie and I see the characters doing everything they can not to blink. And I find myself holding my eyes open the entire time. <laughs> yeah, man, that's really that's kind of cool to know uh, as well. But yeah, man, I, I think that that those two things in combination it, it, and like like I was talking about earlier, I think in terms of your actress, uh, Sophia and even Feldman, you really get invested in each character. You get invested in Gavin uh, with, you know, everyone ha knows what it's like to be passionate about uh, your craft and not really making it, and you're willing to put all, everything on the line, um, and literally he does that, you know, with his marriage and everything. And so I think um, with each layer with each character that we really are kind of invested in um you did a great job of just building them up i could keep going but like is there anything in particular you want to talk about or uh let, let me know no no i'm 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 uh it's hard it's really hard because you know there's there's a million things i can say about this film and if you if you let me i'll keep going and going and going but <laughs> For me, it's more exciting to, to hear what other people think and, um, you know, to, to field their questions. Because you spend so much time marinating in a project like this when you're making it and answering the questions of your cast and crew and, uh, you know, filling in the blanks for them, but also sort of justifying the decisions you're making while you're shooting uh, so that they can see a vision that, I mean, a movie like this is really, really hard to describe. And I'm sure there are people listening to it right now and going, what, what, the, what the hell is this movie? To which I would respond, go see it at the Annapolis Film Festival, the Unnamed Footage Festival, or the Maryland International Film Festival. So please, that's my plug. Um, but yeah, it's a hard movie to describe, and it's even harder to read a screenplay for this and to, full, you know, to be, really be able to see it and go, oh, I get what he's going to do. You almost have to go out and shoot it, experience it in real time, and then see the, 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 the cut, even a first assembly, and go, I get it. I get it. I see what you're going for here. And yeah. that was a gigantic challenge. The first cut of this movie was three hours long, and um, it needed to come down to 90 minutes for commercial purposes. And that was a whole year of my life. We, we did test screenings. Uh, we had comment cards and focus groups, uh, very under the radar, uh, figuring out what worked, what was clear, what was unclear, and now I'm almost exhausted by the film. You know, it's it's like, you know, it plays and it's, you know, it's taken on a life of its own. And audiences are responding to it very favorably right now. You know, at the film festivals we played it in, at the, you know, the, the, the secret screenings and things like that. And people seem to be digging it. And that's really exciting for me. All right, Eric, so I got two questions, and then I will let you go. First question is, I, I, I was wondering, like, how much of the found footage stuff, uh, like, was improv or, like, scripted? Because I felt like it was, it, 
the language of the film and the dialogue, it just feels so real that I almost felt like, you know, you might have had like a brief, like hit this, hit this line, hit this line, and the rest like you guys do. And then um, the, the follow-up question would be like, what's been the best part of the journey so far? Um, I would say that the, in, in terms of, of how we shot it, it was all scripted. Um, what I would typically do is I would ask the actors to hit their lines and we do a couple of takes. And each time we would go progressively more and more off book while still staying within the framework of the scene. And so what you see in the edit is uh, sometimes it's A, sometimes it's B, and sometimes it's C. Um, but I wanted to give them the freedom to inhabit the moment and inhabit the, the, the reality that we were manufacturing. And that, that is the, the second um, answer that I'll give you to your second question, which is, for me, the most fun of this entire process um, was the fact that I was able to play with real people in, in what was almost a, a gigantic um, LARPing sort of sort of uh, experience. You know, it was live action role play. Um, you know, we were all going in and we were pretending this was real in a way that is different from narrative filmmaking where we're all playing characters and we're all here on set wearing costumes. This was, we're all playing ourselves and um, we're, we're BSing and we're, we're trying to make it look like this is really happening and it's not. That was so much fun. And then to be able to screen it for people and have them sitting there and scratching their heads and not knowing what they're watching, but knowing <laughs> they have to keep watching. Right. That, that's, what, that's what's so satisfying about it for me. Yeah, man. Well, I think you absolutely hit it. I love the fact that you had fun with it because for me, I feel like uh, when filmmakers and the cast, the crew don't have fun with, with what they're doing, you can tell. And uh, on the flip side, when they do, you can tell because everybody comes to work. I think everybody came to work on this film. Uh, again, folks, you definitely want to check out Butterfly Kisses from writer-director Eric Christopher Myers. Uh, this is one of those films that I, I, I mean, we can check the tape later, but I just feel as though, you know, you can see it now and be like, yeah, I saw it at, you know, Annapolis early or the Maryland International Film Festival early before it hit the big screen and just went crazy. But uh, this is definitely a film to watch. Eric, man, I appreciate you hanging out with me and talking about it. And the pleasure was mine. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks so much for listening to Picture Lock Podcast, guys. I'm always trying to find great deals on cool things that I can offer you, as you know. And with Picture Lock, Loot Crate is offering an opportunity to save 10% on any new subscription at LootCrate.com. Well, what is Loot Crate, you ask? Loot Crate is a monthly mystery crate for geeks, gamers, and fans of pop culture delivering cool and often exclusive items like collectibles, t-shirts, home goods, and more directly to your door every month. What makes Loot Crate so awesome to me is instead of getting my new graphic tees from the store each month, for the same price or less, I can get cool apparel from my favorite TV shows, movies, games, and more. And if you got a little more to shell out, 
you can get even bigger and better items. No matter what you pay per month, the value of the crate is usually more, so it's a win-win. You're going to search through the rack or shelves anyway. Let Loot Crate do it for you and throw a little curveball in there for you. To save 10% on any new subscription, go to trylootcrate.com slash picturelock. Again, that's trylootcrate.com slash picturelock to save 10% on any new subscription. Enter promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings.